Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Well, today we're going to begin a brand new series that we're calling Day of the Lord. Uh, It's a four-week exploration of the biblical theme of the Day of the Lord. Uh, And chances are, when I say the Day of the Lord, you probably already have images in your mind of Armageddon, war, final battle, maybe even a picture of Jesus riding in on a white horse with a sword in his hand, ready to defeat evil once and for all. Uh, The day of the Lord, uh, as a phrase, is often tangled up in end-of-the-world, end-times, divine calamity kinds of stuff. Uh, And yes, before you think I've gone too far off the rails, yes, day of the Lord does have to do with the end and the future. Uh, But the question that I want to pose uh, as we begin the series is, does all the imagery of war and battle and white horses actually capture uh, the full meaning of the day of the Lord? Uh, And does the day of the Lord, and what does the day of the Lord have to do with our lives today? If it's a future-oriented phrase that points us somewhere out there, uh, then why are we talking about it here, and what difference can it make in our lives today? Uh, So in order to answer those questions, I want to invite you on a four-week journey of unpacking, uh, exploring, and really tracing the concept of the day of the Lord throughout the Bible from beginning to end. Doesn't that sound fun? Yes. Oh, very good. (laughs) Uh, So in order to understand the day of the Lord, if we're going to trace it from beginning to end, then of course we must begin in the beginning. Uh, And I would submit to you that the beginning is always a great place to begin. Uh, So uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at three passages of scripture today. Uh, The first one is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. And uh, since uh, we'll be reading three, uh, kind of the message, I won't ask you to stand up and down. Uh, but we will do, this is the Word of God for the people of God, and with the response of thanks be to God each time we read the Scriptures. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. It says this, uh, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all of the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Verse 29, and then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, that they will be yours for food. And all of the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. Now, if we had read the entire creation narrative as it's recorded in Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, we would have noticed one thing is very clear, and that is at the end of every day, there is a consistent refrain, and that the consistent refrain is, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Day one, God saw that it was good. Two, God saw that it was good. Three, God saw that it was good. 
Four, God saw that it was good. Five, God saw that it was good. Six, let us make man in our own image and you can rule over the world. And so into what we are to capture from this is into this good world, God brings humanity and he gives us a vocation, the vocation of ruling over his good world and ruling over it on his behalf. You see, a lot of times when we read Genesis chapter 1 and it says you can rule over things, a lot of people take that to mean that we can exploit things for our own good, but that's not at all what the case. What, what Genesis is pointing us to is that we have been given the original human vocation, which is ruling over God's good world on his behalf. That is to rule over the world as he would rule over the world. And so the original human vocation is to bring the rule and the reign of God to bear on earth. That should sound familiar, <laughs> right? And so as a church, we believe that central to Jesus' life and teaching was his message of the kingdom of God. And he calls us to live with allegiance to his kingdom. We talked about this in the first week of our defining marks. It is our first defining mark that we are called to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. But we're also called to pray that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And so what Jesus is doing when he's teaching his disciples to pray is he's actually picking up on the very first human vocation to bring God's rule over the earth to bear that we were given right in the creation narrative. In other words, there's a connection between the very first parts of the story and all that Jesus is doing all along in his life and ministry. And so we need to set that out as a foundation. Now, I also want to do a side note here, and this is just like a preacher tangent, okay? So just if you'll offer me a little bit of grace, I would love to take this, this preacher tangent. But a side note here about the creation narrative and what we are reading in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, the Genesis account of creation is not trying to answer any questions related to how God created. It is only seeking to answer questions about who and why God created so the obvious answer to the who question is, God created. So it's not trying to answer how, but rather why. So in other words, if we come to Genesis chapter 1 and we begin to ask modern scientific questions of this ancient poetic text, then we are asking the text questions that it was never intended to answer. Are you with me? Uh, so that's a little side note. Uh, it was all free. What, really what I'm trying to say is, uh, hanging your entire faith system on, a historical and on the historical and scientific accuracy of Genesis chapter 1 is unnecessary. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, so if that's you today, then breathe easy. There is no need to ask modern scientific questions of this ancient poetic text because faith and science aren't in conflict with one another. Now, so let's continue the story. God's creation is good. Into this creation, God brings us, humanity. He gives us the vocation of bringing uh, his rule, his reign to bear on earth as it is in heaven. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 3. Should just be one page. Uh, verses 1 through 6. I forgot to say this is the word of the Lord for the people of God, so I, I forgot that. I won't this time, I promise. Genesis chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Now the woman said to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you may not, you may not eat the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat 
of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is really significant. Now, when the, woman saw, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, in this famous passage, uh, a serpent, and if you have in your mind a little snake, you can, that's fine. Uh, but more importantly, let's have in our minds something non-human, an inhuman character. Comes and approaches Adam and Eve with this promise, that if they eat of this tree, then they will have the knowledge that God has, the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there has been a lot of study about how to think about this first act of disobedience, uh, but I like to think of it this way. The serpent, the serpent character promises, that it, promises Adam and Eve that if they will eat the fruit, they can begin to redefine good and evil in their own terms or on their own terms. So in other words, it's like, what is the text actually saying when it says they will know good and evil and be like God? It says, basically, the promise of the serpent is you'll be able to redefine what is good and what is evil according to your own terms and your own purposes. That is to say that they can call something that is evil good if it serves their own ends. You with me? This is the original act of disobedience, is, is believing that we can redefine good and evil for, on our own terms and then use that redefinition to our own purposes. And so they believe it, they believe the serpent, they eat the fruit. And redefining good and evil is a key concept to understand if we're going to understand the day of the Lord. Like, we have to begin at the beginning. In fact, like, spoiler alert here, we're not hardly at all going to talk about the day of the Lord today. Everything we're doing is foundation to help us understand what God is addressing with the day of the Lord. With me? And so redefining good and evil is a key concept to understand. And at its core, it is when we we call something that is evil good because it serves our own purposes. And the results of this, the biblical narrative will tell us, the the results of this are absolutely disastrous, right? Because first, Adam and Eve's relationship of total trust with one another and with God is broken. Like like the, the immediate effect of redefining good and evil on our own terms is a relationship of trust with each other and with God is then broken. And as a result, they hide from one another, they hide from God, and and get this, they begin to relate to one another with suspicion instead of trust. I mean, the, the results of this are absolutely disastrous. And let me tell you that when you begin to see your neighbor as a threat, things start to spiral downward very quickly. In fact, the biblical narrative will tell us that in one generation, Cain murders his own brother because of jealousy. That in just one generation of humanity trying to do this thing on our own, redefining good and evil, in just one generation, a brother kills his blood brother out of jealousy and murder enters the story. 
In just six generations, you have Lamech who is violent and abusive, and he declares, if Cain avenged seven times, then I 77 times. He actually says Lamech there. He's referring to himself in the third person. (laughs) And so I will avenge 77 times. It's this escalation of evil and violence in the world. And it seems that relating to one another on the basis of threat and suspicion is really just a disease that is passed on. Right? Adam and Eve's desire to redefine good and evil on their own terms leads to a spiral down effect for all who will come after them. And so now, even today, here in our world, for as many things that are different, one thing is the same, is that we see, tend to see our neighbor as a threat And it makes us prone to violence against one another, and then we use death or the threat of death as a way of gaining power over one another. Did you hear me? (laughs) Even now, we see our neighbor as a threat. We we view our neighbor with suspicion. Makes us prone to violence against one another, and gives. And also, we use death and the threat of death as a way of gaining power over one another, as in, you better treat me right, or I will kill you if you don't. And what this leads to is is a society that is built on the most powerful who can hold threat over others. Leads to some people being elevated based on resources, based on any number of things, other people being underneath or at least viewed, certainly viewed as underneath. Power structures, all these kinds of things. Well, this eventually leads to the building of a city called Babylon and the tower called Babel. Turn in your Bibles over to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, what you have, I'm like, Genesis, the first, like anyone who's like, oh, I've never read the Bible, I'm going to start on page one and make my way through, getting through the first several chapters of Genesis is no trouble at all. You have like, uh, you have love triangles, there's violence, I mean, it's just like this really fast-paced narrative, it feels like you're watching a Hollywood blockbuster, right? And they're like, it's, it's so easy, they get to Leviticus, things start slowing down a bit, you know, but like the first bit of the, of the Bible is just like, it, it, I mean, the, the narrative is, is humming, right? It's exciting, but what, what it's really doing is documenting the spiral effect of humanity that eventually leads to this Babel or the Tower of Babel. Or what is Babylon? Now, uh, Genesis chapter 11, uh, beginning with verse 1 all the way through verse 9, says this. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. But as men moved eastward, uh, just a little tip when you're reading Genesis, east is like a, a symbol or an image for moving away from God, right? So when you see people move east, they're moving away from God. Uh, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden and they go east, right? So it's always east. Uh, so here it is. They, people moved eastward and they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And then they said to each other, come, let's make, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they used brick instead of stone, tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the whole earth. 
But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, as if one people speaking the same language, uh, they have begun to do this, then nothing that they plan to do will be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them uh, all over the earth and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them all over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now in this story, the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, just to read it on the surface, it doesn't seem like a lot is going on. In other words, it kind of seems like God is a little bit of a mean guy. Like, hey, they could all speak one language. Hi meant hi, you know, that'd be easy. Uh, but then, like, all of a sudden God just kind of like frustrates that whole thing. God kind of seems like kind of mean, right? When you read this on the surface. Well, there's all sorts of subtext going on here. And what's happening is that in this story, there's a whole culture that is trying uh, that, that tries to use new technology, the technology of the brick and of tar, instead of stone and mortar. In other words, something new is introduced to the world, and the humanity or the culture around it has the opportunity to say, what do we do with this new thing, this new technology that's been given to us? What are we going to do with it? And the answer for them was, uh, we want to elevate, we want to use this technology, technology to elevate ourselves to godlike proportions. Right? And so the only concept that they knew to do in order to elevate themselves to godlike proportions was to build a tower as high as they could build it with this new technology. And so they do. But with that, again, there's a whole culture now that is defining good and evil for themselves. And so you see the power and the influence of the serpent doesn't just affect our personal sin, but it can lead entire cultures to set up systems and structures that are sinful. I want you to hear that again. The power and the influence of the serpent doesn't just affect our personal sin, but it can lead to entire cultures, it can lead entire cultures to set up systems and structures that themselves are sinful. Does that make sense? And so God knows that this would be disastrous, absolutely disastrous this would be if a whole culture then had, had done this and was defining good and evil for their own terms. And so God, in his mercy, scatters the people and confuses their language. But what's interesting is, as you look at from the first act of disobedience, the kind of crescendos to the Tower of Babel, Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, what's in Genesis chapter 12? A brand new beginning. God calls one family, Abraham, and says, I'm going to bless the entire world through you and your obedience. So Genesis 12 is a real important hinge in the biblical story. And so the evil has kind of crescendoed up to this point in Babel. But what's interesting is that because of this, throughout the entire rest of the Bible, Babylon becomes a symbol or an archetype. In other words, Babylon becomes the shorthand way of talking about the evil that was present in the Garden of Eden and then the evil that was put on display in the Tower of Babel. Does this make sense? Evil like seeing our fellow human beings as a threat, using death as a means of power and control, using violence against one another, defining good and evil to serve our own purposes, often at the expense of others. These kinds of evils are all wrapped up in the image or the archetype of Babylon. I know it's early in the morning for deep stuff like this, right? But stick with me. 
Stick with me. This is an important foundation for where we're headed. And so Babylon or Babel is presented as an archetype of evil throughout the scriptures. That is to say that you can say Babylon, but you're actually talking about something else because you're trying to point people to something greater. Okay? Let me give you a silly example of archetype, just so you get a sense of what I'm talking about. Uh, From time to time, I will ask my oldest brother for advice. Occasionally, he gives me good advice. (laughs) Okay, And in those moments when he gives me advice that is particularly wise, I will often say, thanks, Mr. Miyagi. Now, is my brother Mr. Miyagi? No, I I know you were like on the edge of your seats for that. But the answer is no. My brother is not Mr. Miyagi. But so why would I say, "Hey, thanks, Mr. Miyagi," after he had just given me wise and sound advice? It's because Mr. Miyagi is an archetype of a wise master. I am not saying on recorded audio that my brother is my master. It's just an example. <laughs> right? right? Matt, if you're listening, uh, I love you. Okay. So now, so that's, so that's, Mr. Miyagi is an archetype for a wise master. Here's another one. Uh, if someone is tackling a particularly difficult project, you might say to them, and I know that all of you like talk like this, but, but you might say to them, don't even attempt this if you don't have a Samwise in your life. You know what I'm saying? Right? So Samwise, somebody help me, some Lord of the Rings help me out. How do you say his last name? Gamgee, Gamgee, Samwise Gamgee is an archetype for for a champion, someone who champions the cause of another person. So listen, like, hey, if you're going to go tackle that project, I wouldn't even do it if you don't know who your Samwise is going to be. Who's your champion? Samwise is an archetype for a champion, someone who champions the cause of another. The point I'm trying to make is that Babylon is an archetype or an image for all kinds of evil in the scriptures. Okay, and if you don't believe me, uh, then all the way at the end of the Bible, Revelation talks about Babylon falling and being defeated. Uh, Revelation 18 verse 2 says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Revelation 18 verse 10 says, woe, woe to the great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. Revelation 18 verse 21, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Here's the thing. Uh, Revelation isn't, isn't actually talking about Babylon. The big oppressive empire at the time that John, sitting on an island, the island Patmos, that was talking about is Rome. It doesn't say, Rome, you're going to fall, because he sees Rome as representing an evil that can't be captured with, with anything but mentioning the archetype. So he says, Babylon is going to fall. Because Babylon is the archetype for all these kinds of evil that Rome represents. Listen, this is part of the reason that the Bible speaks so profoundly to us today. Because of all the things that it represents, it's a timeless image. And it invites us to ask, what is the Babylon of today? Or, a more important question, like where are the evils that Babylon represents present today. You see, by using an archetype or an image, it it is both deeply rooted in the immediate context, but deeply applicable to all people. You see what I'm saying? 
And so Babylon is this archetype or this image for the kinds of evils like seeing our neighbor as a threat, bringing violence against one another, uh, redefining good and evil, and then deciding if this is good for me, then because it's good for me, I can exploit you to bring about my good. And listen, l- let me tell you that there, throughout the Bible, th- th- there's, no, there's no verse, there's no proof text, there's no chapter verse that you could point to that says, this is it. But, but if you read the narrative, what you get a sense of is this is precisely against the ways of God. This is not what God wants. This is not what God intends. And, and it, it is deep, deep evil that God is seeking to confront. And that's exactly what the day of the Lord is all about. This is the very thing that God confronts on the day of the Lord, is this kind of evil, this collective human evil. So I want to give you a definition for the day of the Lord to kind of get us rolling and get us starting. Uh, So it should be up on the screen. The day of the Lord is a phrase used in the Bible to describe how God is at work in history to confront collective human evil, liberate his people from oppression, and assert his rule over all of creation. That's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a phrase used in the Bible to describe how God is at work in history to confront collective human evil, liberate his people from oppression, and assert his rule over all of creation. Now, The question is, how does God confront this evil throughout the biblical story? And that is our task for the rest of the series, right? So in the meantime, I want to point out two things. Uh, And again, this is all foundation. And so some of you are like, how does this affect my life tomorrow when I go to work? Uh, I want to give you a couple of things, big picture things. Uh, and then how it affects your life when you go to work tomorrow morning, I will leave up to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> uh, so here's a couple of things that I want you to think about in light of all that we've talked about so far this morning. The first one is what it means to be human. Um, if you grew up in the church, uh, it is very likely that you were taught that being mean and nasty and sinful is just part of what it means to be human. Um, because, this, because when you think about how we talk about humanity or ourselves, this becomes very clear. That when we exploit others or when we tell lies or when we cheat, uh, we will say of people or people will often say of themselves, I'm only human. Uh, which is to say that the, it's as though the nastier we are, the more we reach into our own humanity. Uh, I would just say that this is not the story that the Bible tells. This is not the story that the Bible tells. Uh, the Bible says that humans, humanity, is the crown of creation, made in the image of God. Of all the rest of creation, God says, it is good. Of humanity, at the end of the day six, God says, it is very good. It is very good. Okay? And, and so when we think about, like, what does it mean to be human, we, we often tend to just relate to the fact that I'm, 
I'm all caught up in sin and nastiness, and the more that I am caught up in that, the more human I am being, right? Or the more human I am acting. But this is not the story the Bible tells. What we need to understand is that sin makes us less human, not more. That sin is the very thing that strips us or robs us of our humanity. And so behind all of the evil that you read in the first chapters of the Bible, behind all the evil in our world today, is the power of the serpent that is influencing our hearts and bending our wills to misunderstand what is good and what is evil. And there's no proof text for this. There isn't a verse that says this specifically. But if you read the story, it's clear. All of the evil portrayed in the earliest narratives of humanity are thoroughly against what God would have for his children, and it is making them less human. That's why when Adam and Eve are, are, are act in disobedience and they're told a lie by the serpent, I don't care if you think about this character as a little snake in a garden or if you think about it as inhuman, inhumane, non-human character, that if you believe the lies of the serpent, this non-human character, you are moved away from your humanity in Christ. You with me? Does this make sense? In other words, sin is not just a spiral down into your humanity. The goal of of Christianity is not to get away from your humanity. The goal of Christianity is to enter into your full humanity in Christ. Yes, right? This totally switches everything. But if we just think of ourselves as, oh, I'm just this horrible, horrible thing, then that does, that does not bring honor to God in, whom, in whose image we are made, right? Now, if you have a question about what do we do with original sin there, then come in my office. I, would, I have some ideas I would love to talk to you about, but this isn't the, the, the right platform for that. Now, this is, again, let me, let me just bear down on this a little bit more. This is part of the beauty of Christ who was fully divine and fully human. One of the central tenets of Christianity is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is fully divine, 100% God, and on the other hand, fully human, 100% human. If you weigh anything too far, then, then you have gone out of the bounds of orthodoxy. God is fully divine and fully human. And if Christ is fully human, what he does is he shows us what it is to live fully into our humanity as the children of God. Jesus gives us a picture of true and full and authentic humanity, and it isn't sinful awfulness. It is God-reflecting beauty. You with me? Did you hear that? Christ gives us a picture of what it means to be fully human, and it is not sinful awfulness. It is is God-imaging beauty, God-reflecting beauty. So, the path to righteousness is not a path away from our humanity. The path of righteousness is a path toward our humanity. Does that change a lot of stuff? The second thing I want to mention is this. 
the nature of sin. So the first thing I want to bring out just as a foundation is what it means to be human. The second thing is the nature of sin. Uh, When we talk about sin, we tend to talk about it in ways that are very individual. So I lied and I should have told the truth. I cheated and I should have resisted. Um, But when, so so then what, what the effect of that is that when we talk about redemption, we often talk about redemption in very personal terms. So I was uh, freed from addiction, I'm going to heaven when I die, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So sin tends to talk, we tend to talk about sin in very individualistic ways. The result is redemption tends to be very individualistic or personal ways. Uh, But I would say that yes, personal sin is real. Yes, we need personal redemption. But I would also say there's much more to the story than that. Because what we tend to ignore is precisely what these opening chapters of the Bible are trying to point us to. And that is the reality of collective or corporate sin and evil. You see, the story begins with one couple and their act of disobedience. But very quickly, you have a story that has inflated to a whole culture that is playing out that same disobedience, but on a corporate and collective scale. So very, so very, very quickly, you move from one couple who was disobedient to now an entire culture is redefining good and evil on their own terms. It's the same disobedience now being played out on a corporate scale. But here's the thing. I'd be willing to bet that individual persons in Babylon probably felt like there was nothing wrong with what they were doing. On the other hand, I'd be willing to bet that there were individual persons in Babylon that may have seen the evil that was going on and tried to resist it. There may have been individual persons who were acting for or against the collective movement, but the movement as a whole was against the ways of God. Does this make sense? What I'm trying to say is this. There is evil that works its way into the very structures of how we organize ourselves. And if you benefit from that system, it becomes really difficult to critique it or call it out as evil. And I don't know about you, uh, but sometimes it feels like the world is falling apart. Like one evening on Twitter, and you'll be utterly convinced that things are going to unravel at any moment. Like Twitter is where angry people go to be angry. Um, That's just like the truth, right? Uh, And Facebook is where people show pictures of cats and food. So, uh, so, so part of what part of what makes this time in our culture so difficult is that we are starting to learn about things that have previously been hidden just under the surface. In other words, things are starting to to bubble up that maybe we were previously unaware of. And I would just say this, that part of the responsibility of the people of God is to be sensitive and discerning, to see, to ask, to seek, is there any truth in what has come to light? And, And to ask that really important question, is there any truth to the things that have come to light. And then to respond as the people of God, yes, with prayer, 
but also with action and begin to participate with God in his redeeming work. Okay? Um, the word apocalypse uh, does not mean like end-time calamity. Uh, the word apocalypse in Greek literally means unveiling. I would say to you, we, these are apocalyptic times. Lots of things are being unveiled. And we as a people of God need to be discerning of how do we pray, how do we respond in light of all that's being unveiled. I think that's a good thing. Um, Let me tell you a story. A couple weeks ago, uh, some friends and I uh, went to a book tour because those are real things. Uh, people put out a book and then they tour the book in which you go and discuss the book. Um, this, to some of you, sound, this sounds way fun. To some of you, are like, why would you ever do that? But me and a bunch of nerdy folks uh, went to a book tour. And the book was... Um, by a gal named Austin Channing Brown. Austin Channing Brown, before being an author, has long uh, worked in racial uh, justice and how, how do we like talk about, what do we do uh, to, to bring about and, and, and talk about uh, the racial injustices in the world and then, and then what steps can we take toward racial justice. Uh, the book, though, that she uh, recently wrote is the book uh, called I'm Still Here, uh, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation. And I learned a lot. Uh, there's there's uh, lots of voices that we should be listening to, and uh, I think a, a woman of color is probably a good voice to be listening to, to make sure that we hear uh, what is she saying and what is her message in the world. Uh, Full disclosure, I've not read the book yet. I bought the book at the event. Uh, but the discussion fascinated me. After the, after the discussion, there was a Q&A. And at the Q&A, um, I'll, I'll never forget one of the questions that was asked. It was right toward the end of the Q&A. Q&A wasn't very long. Right at the, at the end of the Q&A, this... this older woman of color sitting right on the edge of the aisle in this, this beautiful Episcopal church raised her hand. And her question was this. Austin, uh, could you speak to how white supremacy hurts people with white skin as well as people with black skin? The response I'm a little fuzzy on because I was so blown away by the question for the wisdom and the insight of this woman who her whole life has lived in structures that have not offered her equal opportunity to be able to say and, and recognize that that very system is robbing the humanity of the people that she has felt oppressed by to be able to have that insight and to be able to articulate it in that way 
absolutely blew my mind. And the point I'm simply trying to illustrate is this, that a lot of times we find ourselves in structures and in systems that we benefit from, and so it's really hard to call it out. There were people in Babylon who saw nothing wrong with what they were doing. We're building a tower and using technology up to the heavens. Praise God. <laughs> and there were probably people there who were saying, you know what, I think that by doing this, we're really, by, by trying to make a name for ourselves and by trying to use this new technology to elevate ourselves to God-like proportions, I think that's probably not very good. And we shouldn't do that. And I would just say that for us as a church and as the people of God, we need to be discerning to look at the landscape of the world and just be able to say, are there systems and are there structures to which I am a part of, of which I need to repent, of which I need to act differently, that needs to be set right? And that's a very difficult question. And I can tell you the truth that many of us will land on different sides of the answer of that question. We will answer it differently. But the point is, is that as the people of God, as the people who confess the truth, we ought to be the ones who are seeking the truth most diligently. Amen? Let me give you an example that maybe is a little bit less provocative. If you were to look at the tag of the shirt I am wearing today, if you were to look at the tag of the shirt that you are wearing today, it's likely that it will say, made in Indonesia, made in China, made in Mexico, of all different fabrics. And there's a good possibility that the shirt that you paid $25, 30 $50 for was made by an underage worker in a factory with inhumane working conditions who's getting paid pennies a day. And yet we kind of ask the question of how can I remove myself from that system? I can't so easily just begin to sew my own clothes, but the reality remains the same. Which is why I think it's appropriate for the people of God who are living in Christian victory to still be able to confess and say, God, I am part of, of systemic sin. I'm part of sinful systems of which I can't so easily just remove myself, but I, at the very least, I am going to, number one, realize the reality of the sinful system. And number two, I'm going to pray, I'm going to act within whatever means possible to me, and I'm going to place my hope in the day of the Lord, which is the day where God will once and for all confront the collective human evil, liberate his people, and, and illustrate his rule over all of the world. Praise be to God. Amen? So here's what I want. I want personally, I'm talking about me, I would love for this to be true of our church, to be a discerning people who listen carefully to the voices and to the things that are going on in the world and just prayerfully consider, is there truth to this? 
is there truth to this? And what can be done? Yes, we need to pray. And then what else can be done? Because the day, as we look forward to the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is how God confronts collective human evil, sets things back to right. It is a theme that inspires hope. It is a theme that causes us to not give up. It is a theme that moves us to participate in God's healing work. And next week, we're going to look at how this theme continues to develop in the biblical story by looking at Egypt and the Exodus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, the Spirit of God has challenged us today. I've done my best to preach with honesty, authenticity. I've done my best, God, to be true to your word as best as I understand it. And so I pray now that, God, through your Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts. If there is something that I have said that is not in line, God, would you correct it in our minds and in our hearts? But God, if there's something that I've said that is what we need to hear, even though it may not be easy, I pray that we would have hearts to receive it. Lord, help us to be a wise and discerning people. Lord, we look forward to the day of the Lord where all evil will be confronted, where we will be liberated, and where your rule will be fully demonstrated on the earth. God, we give you thanks and we give you praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.